Good morning. Our verse today, verses are from Romans 15, 14 through 22. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. Okay, how is everybody? Good. Good, solid answer. Okay, um, was that my iPad? This isn't the first time that this has happened, actually. Thank you very much. Are we, hey, it's not broken. Yet. Here, I'm going to spread these feet out a little bit. Eh? There we go. Everybody all right? Okay, uh, real quick, um, before we get going, I want to back up a slide. Oh, you're looking at the, the map already. Okay. Um, so this, uh, here's how this is going to work, because I wanted to make sure that like, you understand. Um, we're doing our baptism service on Easter Sunday this year. We're doing an early sunrise service like we did last year, and then we're going to gather and baptize some people between the two services, and then we're going to have our main service that day. It's probably going to be the same message, so kind of pick one. I like the early morning sunrise thing. It's nice. Um, and so we have, we have five classes. Uh, I'm teaching the first one. Again, Leo and Mary are teaching the, 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 uh, the other four. Um, mine, the very first one, March 5th, is a membership class. Um, and I'm going to talk about sort of how we're structured, how we function, uh, and sort of lay out our vision for like how we see the church, specifically our church, Watermark, and how we function. Um, and that's going to be our sort of membership class if you sort of want to be like move deeper in. And, um, and so that's that. The other ones, the next four classes are going to happen every consecutive week leading up to Easter. Uh, and if you're interested in getting baptized, I encourage you to go to those. They're going to go through the Apostles' Creed. If you're not familiar with the Apostles' Creed, you will be when you're done. But it's basically like, it's, it's, it's the things, I, I always describe it like this. The Apostles' Creed is a collection of the things that Jesus revealed to us about God that we did not know before Jesus came. Uh, it is the reason that um, uh, sort of, we view God the way we do. It's where we get our ideas for a Trinitarian God and what that means. And so we're going to go through all these classes. The first one's about the Father and then the Son and then the Spirit and then the church. Okay, those are the ones that Mary and Leo were teaching. Before them, the very beginning, I'm doing the membership class. So membership, Father, Son, Spirit, church. Uh, and then baptism the next week. So um, I encourage you to think about that. Think about attending. And we're going to do this every year. Um, so yeah, no worries there. And uh, let me go back to today's passage. Now, real fast. 
This is the end of, so we're doing Romans, we're doing it backwards. We're starting at chapter 16, and we're doing it in three sections. Again, uh, the first section is 11 through, uh, I'm sorry, 12 through 16, and then 9 through 11, and then 1 through 8. And we're going to end the book of Romans on chapter 8. You'll understand why when we get there. However, this morning I'm skipping the end of chapter 15. We're wrapping up the first third of the book today. Record time. Uh, three years in Genesis, and like four years in Matthew, and three years in Acts, and like, we're like not even six months into Romans, and we're one-third through. Okay, so um, I'm skipping the end of chapter 15, and we're going to come back to it because there's this discussion there about this thing that Paul does where he goes around collecting money from Gentiles to give to Jewish Christians, and we're going to talk about why, but that's going to come in in chapter 8 when we also talk about Paul's definition of sin and grace, uh, and that's going to be a huge discussion, and um, I think the conversation that Paul has about the very idea of sin and the very idea of grace is groundbreaking, and I don't think most Christians have heard it. Uh, I don't think they've really contemplated and understood what he's getting at, and I think if you understand it, it can help you build a really, really good church culture, which is what the church in America is so desperate for, because every week there's more churches being exposed for horrible things and horrible places in leadership and horrible things that have happened, uh, and I don't think they're reading the book of Romans right, which would be the rem- remedy for most of the things that are happening. So, um, all that said, uh, we're going to cover the second half of Romans 15 today. That was a lot of information. I'm sorry. My brain's going 90 miles an hour today. Um, and so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in and talk about the map, all right, and that you've seen twice now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that you will be with us here this morning. I pray that you would... Help us to, uh, to get a vision for what your desire for the church is. I pray that we would begin to be able to peel away all the, the things that people have put on top of, 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 uh, of the body of Christ, of the church, of what it was supposed to be. Um, I pray that we'd be able to remove sort of all these cultural things we've added to it and just see it for what it's supposed to be and make it... Uh, May it be this new, beautiful, holistic, healing, beautiful thing that gives us life, that brings us back every single week. Uh, um, I pray that you would begin to do that work now. I pray that we would begin to become more hopeful. Um, I pray that we would see you in ways that we haven't seen you. I see our mission in ways that we haven't seen our mission. Um, Open our eyes to what is possible. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. Okay. So I want to start off talking about, um, let's start at 1 Kings 12. There's a passage in 1 Kings 12 uh, that talks about a civil war that happened in Israel that ended with a dividing of Israel into two parts, north and south, much like what happened here 150 years ago. Like, uh, there's this terrible disagreements. These people chose their leaders and were battling each other and warring each other. And it ended with just this agreement that there's going to be two separate kingdoms in Israel. And the northern, the northern kingdom would be called the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom would be called the kingdom of Judah. And there is a man who lived right on the edge, north of Jerusalem, over here, sort of uh, west, uh, right on the border between north and south. He was a farmer. And his name was Amos. Um, here's a picture of him that I saw few years ago that I absolutely loved. Some, there's this woman named Naomi Friend who illustrates sort of the prophets of biblical characters, and I love it the way there's a beggar here and these two rich women shopping, ignoring him, and, and we've got this guy holding a plumb line. This is Amos here. Um, he was, uh, he's got his fields in the background. You can't see the whole picture, but um, Amos was a farmer, 
He was a fig tree farmer, and he lived on the border of the southern kingdom of Judah, right below the northern kingdom. And he was witness to a lot of the, the things that both kingdoms were doing, especially the northern kingdom, the way that they were treating um, migrants, the way that they were treating outsiders, uh, the way that they were sort of taking very lightly the unique way God had called them to live. And they were beginning to build temples for other local pagan deities and, and put these things up everywhere. They built their own temple um, up there uh, to, to all these other deities, including their God, Yahweh. And so they're still, they're still God's people, but they sort of are mixing their religion with all kinds of other things. Um, but the thing that Amos notices is that they're very, 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 very religious, but they're not loving and they're not merciful and they're not gracious and they're not any of the things that God has revealed himself to be throughout their own history leading up to this point. And so Amos becomes a prophet. He feels the call of God to go speak the truth to the world, knowing full well what happens to the prophets of Israel. They're always killed. Uh, And so uh, Amos um, sets off north into the kingdom, uh, and he travels from city to city and sort of uh, works his way up. And as he's going, he's proclaiming to the people um, their their sins, he says, uh, he's pointing out that the way that they, that they treat each other, the way they're not forgiving, the way that there's this unevenness, there's the wealthy that are oppressing the poor, there are judges that are being bought off and, and there's no justice in the land. And he's furious and he, and he takes the message of God to all these places and his announcement really has two parts. First, he calls them to repent, to reorientate their, their, their religious life from this religious activity that they were really, really into. They, were, they had... They had very intricate religious activities that they would do all the time. And he says, uh, you need to move away from all the religious sort of cult practices and you need to begin to focus on the things that God actually cares about, like justice and love of neighbors and enemies alike, welcoming those from foreign lands and caring for them, making sure the judges and the courts are being honest and just and that the leaders are caring for the poor among them. And he's going town to town, making and proclaiming this message and trying to awaken the people to what God actually cares about because there's so much suffering and yet so many churches and so much praise, right? Going at the same time, right? Like this is sort of the modern way I would describe it. Um, and his, his, his second part of his announcement, he kind of tells the people that, Uh, in a very Jewish way that God has, uh, they called it removed God's hand of protection. Paul uses this language as well. Basically saying, um, you've gotten everything off course. You've sown a lot of seeds and you're about to reap the fruits of it. uh, And it's not going to be good. You're going to lose everything. Your, your city is going to be wiped out by the Assyrians um, and by your, by your neighbors. Uh, you're going to be taken into slavery. All your temples are going to be smashed and knocked down. You're going to have nothing and you're going to end up in slavery. You really do need to change the way you're living, become a blessing to the nations around you, become what God called for you to be so that you can flourish and live as God's people in the land. Uh, and of course... What happened to him? Um, they killed him. Uh, there is um, ancient writings about the prophets and the kings where they sort of uh, uh, carry, the tradition was written down in the book that um, he, was, he was killed in a terrible, brutal way by the northern king's son. Um, and so this is the world that they're living in leading up to the time of Jesus, northern and southern kingdom. And, and Amos declares that like, there's going to come a time when God is going to send somebody who's going to reunite all of God's people together, the 12 tribes come back together, 
Um, he's going to bring unity. He's going to bring justice. He's going to throw off the oppressors. And he's going to do something different because by the time this Messiah is done, everyone in the world is going to be integrated into God's people and sort of joined in and brought in and there will no longer be God's people and those on the outside, it will be God's people in the world. And this is the picture that he is painting them. He says, but this will only happen after your destruction and after all this. It's not a real hopeful message, um, but it is a call to sort of repent and stuff. Now, this is the time before Paul. Um, This is the world also that Paul is ministering in. There's a lot of tension between Jews and Gentiles, as we can see, as the book of Romans is about. And before the time of Paul, um, uh, the world was very different. And Paul did some groundbreaking work. I think a lot of people, modern evangelicals, I think we misunderstand Paul a lot. Paul, um, Paul's work was different than the other apostles' work. Paul's ministry was different than the, than the ministry of Jesus. Paul uh, didn't teach things against Jesus. He taught different things because he had a different audience. Jesus is ministering to his own people. When the, when the Jewish people saw Jesus, they saw a symbol of the Messiah reuniting all of Israel. He's a, a Jewish man from the tribe of Judah, like the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? And he's got, he's got 12 disciples around him, 12 Jewish boys that symbolize the 12 nations of uh, the 12 tribes of Israel gathered around him and he's teaching them. And, and so he's this picture of like this unified, restored, ancient um, Judaism. And so this is the hope sort of they see in him. But before Paul's time, everyone was sort of abandoning this idea that, that the Gentiles would be brought in because they began to hate the Gentiles because of the way that they were oppressed by the Romans. And so Paul is born into this world where Paul... Um, Paul's ministry, it's very, very different from everyone else. Before Paul, there was this strict separation between Jews and Gentiles, and there was this separation boundary that went all the way into the temple. There is a, a plaque, and I've shown you this before. It's one of, my, it's one of the most fascinating things to me. This ancient um, plaque with, 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 with Greek letters on it, it was, uh, it's in a museum today, but it was, it was housed in the temple, and it was a sign to Gentiles as they were entering in that there is places in the temple that you are not allowed to go that the Jewish people can go, but you cannot. And if you translate the tablet, it says this. It says, no stranger is to enter within the balustrade around the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. And so if a Gentile were to venture past the temple walls into the main court area where the Jewish women are allowed to go, they would be killed. There's a strict separation. And so you can picture all these People, God's people in there worshiping and singing, crying out for justice and goodness in the world. And yet behind them, there is a wall that literally is keeping people who want to come in out. And this is the world in which Paul is ministering. That's why I wanted to draw attention to the prophet Amos and his words. And when we look at some of his words, I mean, he starts off by saying things like, you levy a straw tax on the poor. You impose a tax on their grain. He says, everything that the poor do, you tax them a little, little more to let them know that you don't really want them here, that you don't really care for the poor in any way. He says, there are those who oppress the innocent, who take bribes, who deprive the poor of justice in the courts. And his final message uh, picks up in chapter five is his big important message right in the middle. And here it is. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Now, this is not Amos talking. This is Amos 
bringing the words of God as he understands God, proclaiming them. And I think he was right. I think this is exactly how God was feeling about this. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. He says, you're singing and you're giving alms and you're making sacrifices, but people are suffering right outside your door and you just carry on with your religious activity like it's not even happening or like you just don't care. It's obvious that God has a different heart than you, that God's not even in this building, that he's outside the walls with the Gentiles. And if you want to find God, you're going to have to turn around and walk back out of the gate again because that's where God is. Um, And so that's why I wanted to draw your attention to the book of Amos. Amos says, all this was supposed to be for the embetterment of the world, for your neighbors. Uh, It's supposed to be good news for the poor, the immigrant, the outsider, the oppressed. And it's not. And we have to begin to recognize that if if the message of, of Jesus is not good news, if the message of God revealed to us through Jesus is not good news for every single person in society, then it's not good news at all. It's not. There is nobody for whom the good news of a seat at the table, at the communion table, with Jesus as our host, coming as equals together, every single person being welcomed in, that is the picture that God has. And if, if, if the gospel is bad news for anyone, if, anyone if, if the gospel tells anyone, excuse me, you're not welcome, you must get up and leave then that means the gospel has failed and the work of Jesus has failed because everyone belongs at the table that Jesus is hosting. All the people that you haven't let sit at your table are welcome at the table of God. Now, uh, when we reach the end of Amos' big vision for God's people, we see that God changes everything. He says at the very end, he goes, and all this is going to happen so that all the nations will bear my name, uh, declares the Lord who does, who uh, uh, who will do these things. Now, um, Justice under, God's pe- under God for all people was the core message of Amos. And so you can, you can kind of guess what happened to Amos. The Apocrypha tells us that, he, that, 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 that the priest's son had him killed. The king and priest's son. Um, and so when we come to Paul and we read what Paul is doing, Paul describes himself as the minister to the Gentiles. I want to put this verse up here for you. This is how Paul describes himself in verse 16. He says, I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. Because of the grace of God, because the grace God gave me to be a minister to Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He calls himself, he says, what I'm doing here is that God gave me grace. Uh, I want to talk about that more when we get into the talk of sin and grace. Uh, God gave me grace by appointing me to be the one to go to the Gentiles. Nobody else in the text sees themselves as specifically called to go to the Gentiles. In fact, they're all fighting it. Some several times the apostles are like, no, God, I can't do that. And God, Peter's praying on the rooftop and God sends down this picture of like Gentile food and says, you should eat this. He goes, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm not like them. I can't do this. And God's like, get up and eat it. I told you what to do. He's like, well, if I have said that this is clean, then it's clean. Don't let your religion get in the way of the love that I have for you and God's people everywhere. Um, and so... When Paul enters into the world, into the ministry, he calls himself the minister to the Gentiles. Minister is a word that directly refers to the work of the priest in the temple. So Paul says, I am the one in the temple who is specifically called to minister 
for the Gentiles. Everyone in the temple is specifically serving the Jews. He says, but I am here to serve the Gentiles. Those people that you, you're threatening to kill if they come in, I'm here to bring them in. And, and, and the way he describes it uh, in Romans 10, um, he, he calls himself, he quotes the book of Isaiah, and this is one of my favorite things, and that's why I say it so much, and I'll probably say it a billion more times. When, when Isaiah talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who take the gospel, right, who proclaim the gospel, Paul says in, in Romans 10, he's like, he's like, that was about me. A little, sounds a little prideful, a little haughty, but this is what, this is what uh, uh, sort of Jewish teachers did. He goes, those are my feet he was talking about, and I will be the one I will take the message to those who you have rejected, who have not been welcomed in. I will go out and I will bring them in. And he calls himself a minister. And so like what we picture here, the, 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 the picture he's planting in your brain for you to see is the temple and all its work, its busyness, people praying and coming and going. There's a chamber outside where the Gentiles are and then there's the women's sort of court and then there's the men's court in the middle um, and they're all doing sort of their own thing. And Paul paints this picture when he calls himself a minister to the Gentiles of offering sacrifices, but the sacrifice, a sacrifice, sacrament means holy. It's, it's, it's the holy gift that you bring to God. I have this prized possession and I bring it to you and I want you to see it and I want you to accept it um, as my gift to you, as my form of worship. And so Paul says, I'm a minister to the Gentiles. And so he pictures himself bringing a Gentile into the temple as his sacred gift. And you picture what kind of, what kind of ruckus this would cause as a man like Paul would bring a Gentile man into the temple all the way up. And he's using all this as a metaphor uh, because it would be incredibly disruptive. If he never actually did that, that would have gotten him killed. Um, but he uses this whole thing as a metaphor for what he wants you to see. And I can, you know, he's, what Paul pictures him himself walking through the temple courtyard and bringing the Gentile as his sacred gift. And, and it's almost like God says, what, what did you bring to the Lord? God might ask. And Paul, did, you bring, did you bring your money? Did you bring... Did you bring power and lay it down? Did you bring, um, what, what are you boasting in to God? God, look what I did for you. Uh, did you gain a lot of power for God? Did you have, is your, do you have this really good pure testimony, this great story of redemption that you tell and that's what you're bringing to God? Or, or maybe you have a, just a really good name, a long and successful career. You've, church attendance is 100% for decades. Or, or like, I, I wrote this beautiful worship song and I bring that to you. And, and uh, my, maybe my monthly tithe. And, and everyone's bringing all these gifts, their monetary gifts. And Paul goes and grabs their enemy. And he, and, he, and he holds the enemy's hand and he comes walking in and says, I've brought you my new brother, my new sister. I brought you your enemy. And I bring them to God to be in the place and dwell in the place with us. For the Gentiles, this is huge news. This is incredibly encouraging. For the Jews listening to this, um, to this message, by this point, it would finally make sense because we're at the end of the book, but this would have been a very, very hard thing for them to accept. That, that division, that boundary of separation was always there. Society relies on our boundaries. Society expects us to set boundaries between ourselves and all kinds of other people and to give you special names and special identities and, and, and we, have, we separate them all. And whenever the spirit of God works though, the first thing he does is, is begin to take down all the boundaries that separate us and bring us all together as one people uh, but at, the, at the table of Jesus there. And so, you know, the, the words of the prophets 
would have been rattling around in their brains the whole time. He's saying this. Away with the noise of your songs, but let justice roll on like a river. Amos 5. Also Hosea 6. Uh, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Just admit, like, this is not what God is interested in. This, the, the show that it's important as a ritual that brings us together and helps us submit to Jesus, but that is not the point. And in fact, if this gets in the way of the actual justice work, the good work that should be done, it should all be thrown out and leveled and built all over again with space for those whom we have left out. And this is God's call to each side, the Gentiles and the Jews who have set up boundaries between themselves and between all kinds of other people within their own groups. And God's confronting these things. He wants to rip them all down. So Paul understands this. And his answer is, I, a Jewish man, have abandoned my gifts of money and resources. I have brought my enemy to you, a Gentile that I received as my brother so that all the nations might bear your name. This is Paul's mission. We tend to think of Paul sometimes as like, a, as like a, a reformed preacher kind of thing, this hellfire brimstone preacher. That is not at all what Paul was ever attempting to do. Paul's entire mission was centered upon bringing Gentiles in to the church that only consisted of Jewish Christians at the time and bringing these two people together. This is his whole mission. And everything that Paul wrote centers on this mission. And it's funny, the way we order Paul's books in the Bible, they're... <laughs> From what I can tell and from what I've read, they're, they're, the way that Paul's books are aligned in the text is, is from biggest to smallest. Not chronological. No, they, I don't know who decided this. I don't know why. I don't know how it is. But what I can tell you is this. It starts with the hardest book of Paul's, Romans, the hardest one to understand and grasp, which is what we're working on now. And it ends, Paul's writings, in Philemon, which is the most straightforward example of what Paul is trying to do by tearing down the boundaries that separate everyone. So he writes this letter, he's, this slave, um, this enslaved person escapes their enslavement and comes to Paul. Uh, and Paul sends him back and, and, and encourages them, receive this man not as a slave. I want you to welcome him as a brother. I want you to take down the separation that is between you all. If you understand the gospel and you understand what Jesus is doing for you, then you will receive this man again, not as someone under your power but as someone that you now serve. It's very, very different. He's turning the whole thing upside down. And so, um, I mean, this is in Paul's entire ministry to, to break the cultural boundaries uh, our world is setting up every single day around us. If you read 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 2, verse 19 through 20, it says this, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. He's writing to the people. And he says, hey, I, you, like, what do I boast into the world? Like, I, it, it's you, it's, it's the people that I'm writing to that, that I have built a relationship with despite all of the cultural barriers that have existed between us and we smashed through them all. And now he's like, I wear you, let's look at it, the crown in which we will glory. When he uses the word crown here, it's really interesting. He could have used the word diadema, which is uh, the Greek word that describes like a, a kingly crown, Right? But he doesn't. He used this other word, which is Stephanos. And the word Stephanos refers to the wreath that a, uh, a Roman athlete would wear after being victorious, after winning the race or winning whatever it was, the wrestling match, whatever it was that they were doing. And they received this crown of glory and they put it on their head. Crown of glory is also the word Stephanos. Like that's, 
It's not a crown like a, like a king would wear. It's much more akin to a gold medal. And so Paul speaks to them and he says, he says, look, I don't have anything to boast in. I've done everything that I've done. None of it matters. Um, I mean, the best way he puts this out is, is 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and, and have not love, I'm just making noise. I could, I could speak with all the wisdom of the prophets, all the knowledge that human, humanity has ever known, but it doesn't mean anything if I have not cared for those who are uncared for. It doesn't mean anything. None of it. It's all pointless. And so what he says is, he says, look, I, don't, I, I know you're feeling like low and you're fighting and you're feeling like not accepted by God and by others, but here's what I want you to know. I wear you like a gold medal around my neck. Like I worked and, and fought and I won you. And I'm, I'm proud of that. That's what I'm proud of. That I have brothers and sisters that I did not have before, that I would not have accepted before. And God has done the work in me and I worked with God and, 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 and I have changed and I have grown and I now see you no longer as an enemy, as a social or political or racial or or. or you know, international enemy, I see you as my brother. I see you as my sister. I see you as my family. He says, and I'm, that's what I boast in. I wear it like a, like a medal around my neck for everyone to see. For everyone to see. I mean, um, I wear you all like a gold, rattle, gold medal around my neck. The victory, like you are the victory that I have won. Look at how, with the help of God's spirit, I have cultivated love in my heart and it's so much love and it has overflowed and you know where I keep all that love? In you. You are the storehouses of love that I have cultivated in my heart and I place upon you. And when you walk into the room and I, and I see how much love we have for each other, he goes, that's what I glory in. Paul experienced wealth and fame and power and all of it. And at the end of it all, he dies a poor traveling preacher. But in his mind, he is the wealthiest man that has ever lived. And when people ask him, what did you do with your life? What, have you, what are you really, really proud of? I'm like, I'm proud of this person and this person and this person. Why? Because I won them. Like, I worked really, really hard to make family of my enemies. That's how God... I mean, God promised that he would wipe away every tear, he would end every war and get rid of all of our enemies. And I never expected that this is how he would do it, that he would make my enemy my brother. And that that was God's plan all along. It never made sense to me. I always assumed that God was going to come and gather up an army and overthrow the Roman Empire. And then somehow we were going to have this kingdom that was like God and then the Jewish people and then the Gentiles, like the temple was gonna go the way it was before. But now I understand God's way of bringing peace into the world is through humility and enemy love, not violence and conquering in the Roman way. It's the way of the cross. Imagine when someone says to you, and we've all had someone say this to you, are you really friends with that person? Don't you know what they believe? Didn't you see what they tweeted last week? Like, didn't you, don't you understand? Like, you, you cannot be friends with them and be friends with me. When someone does this, they're, setting up, they're letting you know about a boundary that you're crossing. It's a warning. If you cross that boundary, I'm out. But the problem is, 
Whenever you set up a boundary between yourself and other people and you say, well, look, we're right, they are wrong. Not only are we right and they're wrong, we're good and they're evil. And you set the boundary and everyone lines up behind you and you look across the way. You know who you see? Jesus. With them on the other side, calling you to cross the boundary that you just made. That's what Jesus is doing. That's always what Jesus has been doing. Are you really friends with this person? They're, they're warning you of a social boundary. They, and imagine, when so, are you really friends with this person? They're my prized possession. I wear them like a, like a gold medal around my neck. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, should come, you, should, you should meet them. You should come with us. They're, they're a loved one now. Yeah, they're crazy. They're my loved one now. Like, I, it's okay. In the end, I will find out how wrong I was. They will find out. How, God will do God's work. God has called me to enter into relationship, to understand, to be curious, to ask questions, to, to mourn the pain that they have experienced for whatever reason, whatever their life has brought them, to try to grasp and mourn it with them. Instead of standing back and drawing a line and judging everyone and saying, you, if you really want to be righteous, you have to come this way. You have to come over to where we are because we're always on the righteous side, aren't we? We always are. As far as Paul is concerned, he only has to boast about what Christ has done and accomplished through him. Only the actions that brought people closer. It's not the size of the church. It wasn't the, the, the fame that he attended. It was none of it. And so he says in verse 17 through 19, he says, therefore I glory in Christ Jesus. In my service to God, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power and signs, power of signs and wonders, uh, through the power of the Spirit of God. And so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have proclaimed the gospel of Christ. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Now, when Paul says, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ, he's not saying... He's not saying some people explain half of it. I explained the whole thing. I was very thorough. That's not what he's saying. He's saying I preached to Gentiles. I preached to people who nobody else would go to. That's a Pauline way of saying, oh, and I preached it to them too. You went to them? Yeah. You're not bringing them into the church, are you? Absolutely. They can sit next to the judgmental people. <laughs> like, this is what Paul is doing. This is what got Paul killed. This is what got Paul stoned several times with stones. This is what got Paul thrown off a boat. This is what got, got like this was what got Paul landed in prison over and over. And it's like a joke grenade. It's a it's a late grenade joke. Um, uh, that's what Paul is doing. And 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 when he says, "Yeah, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ," that's a Pauline way of saying, "And I preached it to everyone, not just people like you and I." And we made space at the table. And man, is the church different now? And it's disorganized a bit, and there's some tension. But God is there, and God is working, and God is doing his thing. And so, if I'm going to summarize chapters 14 and 15, if I'm going to give it a thesis, if I'm going um, to paint a picture for us, and what we want, and what we desire, I, I mean, I, I've been thinking so much lately about church, about what do we all really, really not just want, but need out of all of this? Um, instead of doing 
the modern evangelical thing where, where we try to keep growing and growing the church and into this big thing with all these programs and, and we got a program for that and we got a program for that and, and you should come here. You should leave your church and come here because we got a program for that too and your church doesn't have that. And we turn these into like these consumeristic ventures, right? Like, um, I mean, a lot of, any pastor will tell you people have left their church simply because they, they couldn't provide enough of this or that. It's, it's like, it's like, it's like venture capitalism. And this is how we treat the church. Um, instead of searching for the churches with the best youth groups and the teachings and the, and, and the worship, however you gauge that, um, it's all cultural, it's, it's whatever, it's all relative. Um, why don't we first just admit and confess that none of that actually matters to God? <laughs> and until you admit that, like it's great, like youth programs, music, I'm, I'm a musician, I love music and I, I appreciate incredible music. But in the grand scheme of things, you can have killer music but be an unloving group of people. And, and you're just an unloving group of people with a good band and that's all you are. You're not the presence of Christ in the world. You're not doing any of God's work. Um, and so we first need to start by admitting and confessing that none of this actually matters to God and, and start right there. And second, I, I think we need to, I, I wish, I'm asking that we can try and admit what we all desire but cannot say. That we are desperate to be fully known and fully loved by a community of people with whom we have very little in common with other than Jesus. That's all we really want is a group of people that see us every week that are glad you're here, that listen to what's going on in your life, and that care. Uh, I mean, there's this epidemic of, of, of loneliness and spiritual starvation that comes from our lack of relationships and lack of spending time with other people in this sort of elevated form of community. A community without boundaries where all are welcome and we do our best to sort things out in loving ways. When you seek this kind of unity, it actually doesn't get easier. It actually gets harder, but it brings more growth. It allows God to do the thing that God intends to do. And this epidemic of loneliness, we have to confront it somehow. I think the church is well-equipped to confront the loneliness in our culture. Maybe you've felt it. Maybe you've, over the last whatever year or two, you've just been like, I, I don't have community. I just don't feel it. And I'm, I'm hoping the house churches, like I'm hoping that you're building that community, that you're letting each other know how important you are, the same way that Paul does with the, with the wreath. and the, Like, we have to communicate this to each other. We have to see each other in this way. The most important thing I think that we can strive for is being a church that cares about each other, that raises our families together, that teaches them to live lives that, that, that mirror Jesus instead of mirroring our surrounding culture. A group of people that we gather with and, and spur towards Christ-likeness. Not, not, most of us think of churches, it's a list of doctrines and these are all the people that affirm these doctrines. That is stupid. That is not what the church was ever supposed to be. We've, we've listed it all out for you. You can either accept or reject. If you reject, you're gonna be uncomfortable or you're gonna leave. But if you like it, you're in and you'll move your way up to the front. Right? That is not what God is doing. I mean, don't we have enough capitalistic endeavors and consumeristic endeavors in our lives? We have them everywhere. The church doesn't need to be one of those. The church does not need to be that at all. Uh, it, it, it doesn't need marketing. It doesn't need, it doesn't need branding. It doesn't need any of this. Like, 
Does this also have to be the same thing as everything else in our lives, a thing that must grow and grow and grow and get better and better and better before we find someplace else uh, and, 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 and we swap it out the old place for the new place because, well, it's better. Imagine if Jesus did that. You don't think he'd find somebody better than you? For sure. Like, better than me. Like, I'm not, like, I have a specific person in my mind right now. No, like, God will grow his kingdom. It has nothing to do with us. God will grow his kingdom. What we are called to do is to make that kingdom simply visible. Let people see it. Do the holy thing, the thing that is different. Where we, we do our best to locate these boundaries and do what we can to dismantle them. The boundaries that we draw, it's very difficult because there's ideologies and there's, there's history and there's pain. But you know what? Like, God will grow his kingdom. Do you know what I want? I want a group of people to come together every weekend to share tables a couple of times a month. We see each other every single weekend. And, and, and a group of people who show up, who look at each other in the eye every week for my entire life. Forever. So that I am never alone in this life. There's no reason you should feel this way. There's no reason we should suffer this kind of loneliness. I want a group of people that are honest about the joys and struggles of life, about the difficulty of faith and religion, about their deconstruction, about the things that the doubts that they have. We all have them. There were times in my life where I desperately struggled with agnosticism. And you know who I could tell? Nobody. Have you felt like that? Of course you have. Like, the joys and struggles of life, about the difficulty of faith and religion. I, I want to be able to talk about the confusion that we all share on issues of, of belief and culture and sex and race and money and pride, success and failure. And I want to be with a group of people who walk with each other through, through all of these things and all of these hard conversations and through our broken marriages and, and through our losses, I, children being born, losing our parents. And we walk through it as the body of Christ, carrying each other all the way. This is all we all want. It doesn't matter if the preaching sucks and the music sucks and the children's ministry sucks. It doesn't matter. We need each other. Where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to ask your questions? The internet? We tried that in 2020. It went terrible. It wasn't good, man. Like... I mean, there's difficulties raising kids, saying goodbye to parents, asking above all, like, what is God doing in this moment? What is God doing here? And how can I be the presence of Christ in moments like this? When people have questions about gender and sexuality and people have questions about the nation, and the part faith plays in any of it. And there's so much confusion. And there's so many people terrified to talk about any of it. Because they're afraid that they're going to they're gonna hit a boundary and get rejected. And Paul is saying, the fact is these boundaries are all man-made. They don't need to exist. They don't have to. Why can't we remain together through difficulty and disagreement and not try to coerce each other and try to take giant stances against each other on every stupid little thing? 
because we need each other. We should not be boasting in any of our accomplishments, in any of the theological structures that we understand and subscribe to. We don't need to boast in any of that. We boast in the boundary-breaking relationships that we have made with people that God is drawing towards himself, whether we like it or not. That's what we're here to do. And the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Do you know what it means to be in Christ Jesus? Um, New Testament scholar Ernst Kasemann, Greek word for cheese man. Um, Ernst Kasemann, who, who was arrested by the Nazis and thrown in prison during World War II for speaking out against um, the Christian nationalism of his day. He writes and talks about this and he says, to be in Christ, in Paul's mind, is to literally be in the church. That's what it means. To be in Christ is to be in the church. And if you're in the church, Paul looks at you and says, you, you, you walk in, maybe, maybe you're a slave, maybe you're a, um, a, a prostitute, maybe you work in the brothels, maybe you, you work in the temple, the pagan temple, and you walk in and you're ashamed and you're covering your head and you're, you're walking into the room and Paul says, hey, and he pulls it back a little bit, look, you're in the church now, you're in the body of Christ, you're in Christ, welcome. There's no condemnation for you right now. There's no condemnation for you here. When you step outside of these doors, you will find everyone that will condemn you for every little thing you've done. Here, we confess and we gather at the table. And instead of confessing each other's sins, which is our favorite pastime as Americans, we confess our own. And we hear the body of Christ say to us, your sins are forgiven. Not because of anything I've done. Not because of anything you've done. Because of what Christ has done. Welcome to the body of Christ. There is no condemnation for you. And so in the church, we don't conquer each other. We don't judge each other. We don't boast in each other, not in our identities or our, or our accomplishments. I boast in you. And that's the only thing I have to boast in. We boast at what God is doing in the lives of other people through us. That is the big thing we have to give to the world. Churches doing this kind of stuff are not gonna make any top 10 church growth lists in any kind of magazines or anything like that, but it's, it's all bull crap. It has nothing to do with Christianity. It's just American consumerism that has co-opted the name of Jesus to make more money from Christians who don't know any better. We can begin to awaken and know better. Um, I don't know how to land this plane. It's landed. <laughs> Let me pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Be with us today. Remind us and bring to our attention when we are setting up boundaries. Remind us that you instantly, with every boundary we build, you get to work tearing it down and making our enemies our family. I pray that this would be our posture every day, that we would wake up we would crawl back up on that altar and push everything else we've placed on there apart and then we would just offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices that our life would be laid down as a bridge to outsiders to be brought in. And I pray that you would do this work, that you would do it through us. I pray that it would disrupt us in so many ways, that it would change us. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand and... Uh, and pray the Lord's Prayer with me. Nice and loud, all right? 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, Next week, we're going to start Romans 9. And I'll see you next week. Have the greatest week of your life. God bless you all.